Today, I'm interviewing Beth Bostick. Beth is a passionate advocate for kids with special needs and their families. She was an entrepreneur, parent leader, and special needs advocate for 15 years, and now brings her expertise to serve even more children, youth, and families through the Massachusetts Department of Public Health as the Assistant Director of the Division of Children and Youth with Special Health Needs. She's also a mom and such a great example of someone who turned their life experience into a passion for serving and positively impacting the lives of others. This interview goes about 40 minutes, which is longer than usual because she shared so many pearls of wisdom and lessons learned from her experience as a mom of a medically complicated special needs son that I just couldn't cut anything out. You don't have to be a mom to be inspired by this story. I know you're going to love Beth and her tale of persistence and belief against all odds. You're listening to The Inspired Wave, stories of everyday heroines, real life inspiration. I'm your host, transformational coach and connection catalyst, CJ Rivard. Join me weekly to hear real life inspiration and tips for tackling your life's challenges. Each week you'll hear from a relatable woman who shares about her struggles and the tools she used to work through them. By being women of courageous action, vision, and ongoing evolution, each of us can create a ripple of positive impact. And together, we'll create a wave of change. Join us. Well, welcome. Thank you for tuning in. I'm so excited to introduce my friend Beth Bostick to you today and have a great conversation. She's got a really amazing story we're going to be sharing today. Beth, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be asked. Thank you so much. Super. So um, just to get us started, why don't you tell us where you live or where are you calling in from? I am calling in from my home in Methuen, Massachusetts. And for anybody who doesn't know where that is, it is literally right on the Massachusetts, New Hampshire line. So, you know, five minutes away, I can go into tax-free New Hampshire and go shopping. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Loving it. <laughs> I just always think of you as Boston, but that's mm. close enough, I guess. How far are you from Boston? Oh, I'm about 40 minutes from Boston. I'm not far. Okay. I'm just, I'm, we're literally the very last exit on 93. So you know, okay. just go up 93, keep going. I get, take a right. Close <laughs> enough. Yeah. Closer than I am. So everyone just heard a little bit about you and what you do. Tell us a little more. What do you like to do to relax or when you're not working or? <laughs> On those rare occasions when we're not working. I have a lot of passion for dance and theater. And growing up, I did a lot of ballet and modern jazz. I had the opportunity also to travel when I was a teenager to Ecuador as an exchange student. So that's where I learned how to salsa. And so now kind of my next goal is to learn Latin ballroom dancing. So I love to do that. I love going to the theater. I always have musical theater in particular. And it tells really nicely with what my daughter does because my daughter is a, a theater performer. She lives in New York. So I love going and seeing her perform and doing things like that with her. And I love going to the beach. Like my favorite place in the world is an ocean. <laughs> like I, so I love going there and just relaxing or just sitting outside on a bright sunny day, you know, and just being outdoors. Don't care to do the landscaping, just like to enjoy the outdoors. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I hear that. Yes. <laughs> Love to be outdoors, hate to 
work at making it it work for the exactly (laughs) so and then also just talking with people and just getting to know them and learn about different cultures and ways of thinking and traditions and things like that yeah that ties in well with the the travel and everything so i know that your story revolves around your amazing son james can you tell us a little about him and when he entered your life Sure. So James, as and we call him affectionately King James, he was born a little over 20 years ago. And when he came into this world, he was born seemingly perfectly healthy, but within 10 days, because of severe jaundice, became very disabled. And so I didn't know at the time that jaundice could do this to a child, and many people don't. You know, if jaundice goes unchecked for too long, it causes brain damage, and it affects the one portion of the brain that affects the motor port control of your body. And so it's a condition called conicterus that we had largely eliminated in the United States, but because it became so rare and pediatricians became unaware of it, it's starting to grow again here. It's actually very common in a lot of other countries, but really here in the United States, it's perfectly preventable if people were aware of it. So James went from a healthy newborn baby boy to being severely disabled. He became non-ambulatory, he became non-verbal, he had a hearing impairment and he could not eat normally the way he was G-tube fed. And so that just kind of totally turned our world around. He was our second child. I have an older daughter, Maritza, who was seven years old at the time. And she had gone, you know, she, everything with her was typical yeah. and normal. So this came out of the blue. We had no understanding of what this meant for us as a family. And for me, I had grown up very healthy. The, the mm-hmm. only time I had ever been in a hospital was to have children. You know, we don't have many people in our family that are severely disabled. So this was a very new thing for us. But he was larger than life and had a great big personality. And we had to figure out how we were going to support him as he was growing up. So I know that having James and learning about his needs really affected how you approached I guess everything, because I know your work and everything ended up revolving around him. How did that evolve? How did your work and advocacy evolve? So at the time that James was born, I was working in a training and consulting organization. We specialized in diversity and inclusion training. And I was a project manager and I loved my job. I had been there for quite some time. It was a wonderful place to work. James came with a lot of needs and and not the least of which was his he had 14 medical specialists at a hospital that he had to see at least every six to 12 months so when you think about that right you know you add all those appointments to your schedule and you're trying to work a typical job it doesn't work well Mm -hmm. right so once James went off to preschool I learned that my transition into preschool with James went a lot more smoothly than many others did And I started to wonder what the reason was for that. And what I found was that because of the way I was raised, we were raised as as an African-American family, we were taught to advocate. We knew that as people of color, we were gonna have to advocate for our kids regardless. But people had notions of intellectual inferiority that these kids were gonna, you know, just they weren't going to have, be given the kind of latitude that their Caucasian or white peers were were given. And so we knew that as it was a given. I also was president of my debate club in school. So a healthy argument, cool, I'm, I'm, always, I'm all for it. Please bring it on, I, you know, I, because I've also understood that very often it's not personal. It's really just about, 
different opinions and understanding what the other person needs and, and, and figuring out how to address that need. And then also, because I was a project manager, I understood team building, consensus building, diverse you know, personalities and diverse opinions. And so I wasn't afraid of that either. What became really clear to me was I could take all of those different skills and move them into a different area. And so I, I needed a job that was going to give me flexibility. I needed a job that I could control. And so that's when I decided to move into special education advocacy. I also, because of the way I was raised around education, I did not understand until I got trained in special education that special education law was patterned after civil rights law. And so because I had been brought up understanding civil rights, I went into my meetings with James with an assumption about how things should work, not knowing that I was absolutely 100% on point with that, right? I understood more than I knew that I understood. And so that was part of the reason why I feel I went in better prepared in many ways, because I understood how education should work. I understood that it was a civil rights issue. I also understood that I was going to need to advocate and help people to see things differently. Many Mm -hmm. people don't know how to do that because they've never been required to do that before. Mm -hmm. But as a family, we knew how to do that. I had visions of my father going to the school when I was a child, advocating for me to be in better reading groups and things like that, not to be assumed to be dumb. You know, and then the team building, I genuinely wanted to hear what everybody had to say at the table. I wanted to understand what their point of view was. I wanted to understand what they needed, what kind of information do they need to possibly change their mind or for me to understand their point of view to say, oh, okay, yeah, no, actually that makes sense. Yeah, we should do it that way. So because I could do all of those things, that's what started the business, Yeah. Um, Yeah. which I did for 15 years. I loved doing that work. It was a lot of fun. And then also I had the added benefit of understanding different cultural norms and working with families who had different ways of looking at the world. So, you know, Asian family sees special education and disabilities differently than a Latino family would. And yet another group might see it another way. But because I already understood that and accepted that, I very often became a cultural broker between school districts wow. and families so that we could all understand and hear each other. And, and that came from my background as well. So it really helped me to take a lot of things I had been doing in a lot of different ways over time and put it into one job that I loved doing. So that's what actually moved me into that space because I wanted to help people. Yeah. And also, as you know, if you, if you love what you're doing and you're helping people very often, you can do pretty well financially that way. So it helped me to be able to meet several needs at the same time. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell us about your journey then with James and the medical challenges that kind of took you by surprise all over the place, his challenges, the system challenges. Yeah. So, you know, James, as complex as he was, for the most part, was a fairly sturdy and healthy guy. He wasn't fragile, but he had an implant. It was called a baclofen pump, and it was something that helped with his tone. So very often he could become very, very stiff. And if he didn't have this medication in him, then that stiffness would remain. But this gave him a little more flexibility and made him easier to work with. And so this pump had to be changed every five years because the battery runs out on it. And we were planning for when James could have spinal fusion. And we decided that we needed him to do his pump first and then do the spinal fusion. So we planned for what was a very routine 
procedure. He's done this several times before in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. We went into the hospital to have his pump replaced. And after he had his pump replaced, he went into what is called dystonic crisis. And the best way I can describe that for people is everybody at some point in their life has experienced a Charlie horse, right? You know, that excruciating pain yeah. in that one area of your leg that's just, is really, really hard, okay? That's what James was literally experiencing from head to toe for hours at a time. Oh my Uncontrollable gosh. spasms that were going through his body. And so he was, you know, we was going to be just a day or two in the hospital, actually became 15 and a half consecutive months in a hospital setting. And so we were in one hospital for four months and I had identified the surgery that I wanted James to have. We tried all kinds of medications, as you could imagine, and nothing worked. And I said, you know, I really think that he needs deep brain stimulation. And the neurologist who was in charge of the clinic there said, I don't think he's a good candidate. We're not going to be able to do that. So after a while, they transitioned us to a different hospital, a pediatric rehab facility. And we stayed there for another six months. And while we were there, about two months in, I said to the doctor there, you know, would you ever give consideration to deep brain stimulation? And he said, you know, it's the first thing that came to mind, but seeing that the other hospital ruled it out, I didn't bring it up. And I said, well, could we bring it up now? Because we've been in this process for six months and he hasn't been able to go home yet. And at one point, a very well-meaning nurse case manager came to me and said, you know, you may just have to accept the fact that this is the way James is going to be. And he's going to probably have to go to a pediatric nursing facility for the rest of his life. And I was like, Oh, no, no, no. Wait, we, we went in for a routine procedure. <laughs> I can <laughs> just picture you. Like, no, 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 we're not. <laughs> what you talking about, Willis, right? You know, and I was like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. So, you know, I listened to her patiently, you know, because you do want to listen and hear because you don't want to eliminate options. But it just did not make sense to me. Did not make mm-hmm. sense to me that this young man who had been through this procedure several times before goes in for a procedure that is very routine and would end up being institutionalized essentially. That wasn't, that didn't make sense to me. He was 16 years old. He had been home since the day he was born. What are you talking about? Yeah. So I said, well, would you consider it now? And he said, yeah, no, absolutely I would. And so we approached the hospital again and a couple of hospitals in the Boston area and they both said no. And a friend of mine said to me, you do realize that there are other hospitals in the country Beth." And I went, huh. So we approached a third hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota, and literally within 24 hours, they accepted his case. That was the first hurdle. Mm -hmm. The second hurdle was then getting the insurance company to pay to to send him to that hospital. And the insurance company said no, twice. And finally, I'm looking at this and I'm going, there's got to be a way because otherwise, how are we going to do this? And that's when I learned that there are these things because of the Affordable Care Act called independent review organizations. And independent review organizations were an independent body where you could take your case that's been denied by your insurance company and have a third party rule on whether or not they agreed with that or not. And whatever they ruled, that was the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And the other beauty of it was you could reshape your argument. So whatever you had sent to the insurance company before, if you wanted to send a completely different argument, you could. The problem was we couldn't give James a particular diagnosis because he wasn't intubated and sedated. And I knew that that was part of the problem. And so I went to the doctor and I said, what if we were to say that James would be diagnosed with this particular diagnosis, but we can't give him that because it's masked by the, the medications? And he says, 
yeah, we could do that. I said, well, let's do that in our letter of medical necessity. So we did that. And we asked for it to be rushed because of course, at this point, James has been in crisis for over nine months and they overturned the decision. So we, were being, we, we knew we were gonna be flown out to St. Paul, Minnesota. And the Friday before we left, the doctor who had denied us this surgery in Boston mm -hmm. called to let, wanted to make sure I had realistic expectations about what was gonna happen with James. And I was like, well, aren't you just a ray of sunshine? We'll see you when we get back. <laughs> so we flew out to St. Paul, Minnesota. James had his surgery. And imagine this, it was a success. We stopped the spasms. He was doing extremely well. And we also noticed that for the first time in his, in his life, he had volitional movement in one of his hands. He could actually move his fingers. So this was the other thing I was hoping for was not only would we stop the spasming, but we would find another access point. So because James up to this point didn't have a means of communication, his tone had always gotten in the way. That stay in St. Paul, we expected to be for four weeks. It extended out to five and a half months because oh he had been through so much in the prior 10 months that we had to get him back to the place where he was medically stable. And we were very clear that if we got him back home to Massachusetts and something went wrong, there wouldn't be resources to correct that. Wow. So we got him stable. He went through several other surgeries and we did actually discover that what I had suspected was true. There was something wrong with that baclofen pump that had been put in. Mm -hmm. All this time, he wasn't even getting the medication. It was malfunctioning. So we got home and eight months later, we were able to get him in school and we had to send him to a different school because the school he was in was afraid of him medically. They didn't feel like they could handle him. And so we had to move him to a different school. And this school, I was really upset about this because of course, James was looking really forward to going back to his original school where his friends were. He had been there for mm -hmm. eight years, mm -hmm. you know? And on some levels, I felt really betrayed by this, but we, we went to a different school and this team of people had no preconceived notions about James. And it was probably the best move we could have possibly made because they were the ones who approached me and said, we'd like to try eye gaze with James. And up to that point, eye gaze had not been a possibility because remember, this is a condition that affects the portion of the brain. Can you explain what that is in case yes. anybody's wondering? Okay. So, James uh, would be able to use his eyes to activate a computer that would then speak the words that he's selecting on the computer. So Amazing. he can have a conversation with someone. Now, up to this point, he wasn't able to do that before this surgery because the connectorus had prevented him from being able to look up and down. So he could only keep a track left to right. But that meant if he was using a computer, his vision field was very limited mm -hmm. and it was very inconsistent. We tried a device with him activating this device. So what he literally has to do is look at something for a period of time and stare at it. And if he does it for a period of time, then that's how the computer knows that he's selecting either that letter, that word, or that phrase. We tried out this device. And at first he wasn't all that interested. He's like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of bored with you right now. And so finally, after taking a deep breath, he's 18 at this point, okay? Mm -hmm. Heterosexual male. And I said, could someone please put a Beyonce video up there? And so we put up four different Beyonce videos. True story. <laughs> and so we put it up on there and we situated it like a clock. So we put one video at 12 o'clock, one video at three, one video at six, one video at nine. And honest to God, James went from, you know, lackadaisical, couldn't care to, oh, hello. I was like, uh, 
was such a man. <laughs> but here was the thing. He went to the 12 o'clock one. He played it. He's just beep bopping and it stopped. And so we said, do the next one. And he went down to the one at three o'clock and he activated and he was like, okay, I'm liking this. And then he went to six o'clock and, and we were, and we all like our chins are down on the floor because he went all the way around and he has never been able to do that before. And so I was like, huh. So I said, well, let's do another test. And we tested a couple of other things. And then we mm -hmm. were able, we had data after in 45 minutes, we had data that said James could use a device and communicate for the first time in his life. At 16. At eight, this oh, was at 18. 18 years of age. 18, 18 wow. years of age. He had never had that before. And so it was, it was crazy. We're just like, wow, this is amazing. So six months later, he finally got his first device. And he was able to tell us what he wanted. He could tell us how he was feeling, Incredible. like all of these things we couldn't do. And the other thing that was really cool was that the school he was in before that was a school for the deaf, because you remember he had this hearing impairment. Oh. And so he, his receptive language or the language that he understood was ASL, was sign language. Mm -hmm. When he was typing out on his device, mm -hmm. his grammar was an ASL grammar. So all that time he had in fact been taking it in. He had mm -hmm. language, he just couldn't express mm -hmm. it. So wow. he got his device in July and in October, I had taken my mother out to see my daughter in a play. She was in the color purple out in Oregon. And when I came back, James was not speaking to me. He was very upset with me and I didn't care. <laughs> I was like, whatever. Okay, cool. You know, you're a teenager who doesn't want to talk to me. How unusual, right? <laughs> but his teacher got him to talk about it. And what we learned was he was upset because he couldn't understand why I was willing to take him to St. Paul, Minnesota, but wasn't willing to take him to Portland, Oregon. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll give you that one. And he asked to speak to his sister, and he did. And then afterwards, for the first time, James told me that he loved me. And it was in that moment that everything we had been through, including that 15 and a half consecutive months in three different hospitals over two different states, paid off. And he could have anything he wanted in that moment. He really could. He could have had anything yeah. he, <laughs> he had you, boy. You know, yeah. and it was just one of these things where I was like, wow. And, you know, so as I went through, having gone through that entire experience, you know, I had learned some things along the way, things like because of the state that we live in, if James did not have private insurance, we never would have gotten to St. Paul, Minnesota, because MassHealth doesn't allow you to go outside of the state of Massachusetts to get medical services. Wow. Um, and so, you know, I started thinking about that and thinking about, you know, it, it took us 15 and a half months for him to get what he needed. Mm -hmm. And that's with somebody who's raised in the United States speaks the language, knows how to advocate, yeah. right? knows how to ask questions and navigate. So what's happening to those families who may not have been raised in the United States or who haven't been socialized to advocate mm -hmm. or who speak a different language or whose only insurance is mass health and they need a specialist that's outside of the state of Massachusetts. That's when I decided, okay, I need to shift my attention from special education to healthcare advocacy because I needed James's story to make mm -hmm. a difference for somebody else. And particularly for children that looked like James mm -hmm. because there are so many disparities in healthcare that we know about, that we talk about all the time. 
and that we're not doing a whole heck of a lot about, and that needs to change, right? Because one of the other things that I learned during our trip uh-huh. was that there was another young man who had the exact same situation, and he got access to that surgery within six to eight weeks of his crisis. Same age, same condition of conductorus, same everything, except for one thing. He was not a child of color. And it was when I discovered that, as you can imagine, I was enraged. It was like, okay, so James had to go through all of this when he, no. somebody else didn't have to? Really? Seriously? So that's when I decided, yeah, we're going to have to change. We, we need to educate ourselves, figure out how to be taken seriously so that I can help change policies for all children. Because yeah. all children means all, not just certain ones. Yeah. And so that's wow. when I decided to work towards that change. Well, just the fact that so many parents also just don't know how or what to do. Have you seen in the advocacy that you do that sometimes parents are unwilling to push because of the authority, like dealing with authorities? There are a lot of people who are intimidated, you know, and and Mm -hmm. it is intimidated. As a parent, you go into the room and you're sitting around all of these experts Right. And yeah. so and you don't realize that you are an expert of your child. So people are not are taught to respect authority. Right. They're yeah. taught that these are the experts. They must know what they're talking about, you know, and that you're just the mom. You're just the parent. This is public school. We're going to do what we want. That's kind of the way you're socialized. Mm-hmm. So if you don't understand that you can push back, that you can ask questions And there are ways to do that that are respectful and collaborative and at the same time can get to what you get, what you want. Yeah. But many people don't know how to do that. They don't understand how to do that. Right. Well, you're tired and sleep deprived all the time because you got this kid who needs so many things. (laughs) You're like, can I not fight for something? Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. that's crazy. But I think I'm especially impressed with your willingness to fight the medical and insurance community, which just seems like such a behemoth that's hard to fight, let alone get what you intended all along to get. Well, I wasn't willing to accept my son going anyplace but home. So the failure was not an option. There you go. Yeah. But you have that, to know how to ask questions and know which questions to ask and keep pushing. And I think very often parents give up and just say, well, you know, that's the best I could do. I just wasn't willing to accept that as a possibility. And I wasn't willing to, to say to James, I'm sorry, you can't come home. Oh my gosh. I, yeah. no, I wasn't going to say that to him. Yeah. You know, wow. there's nobody, you know, and it's not that I don't believe that there are people who would take good care of James. I believe that there are yeah. people who are very good hearted, very, very skilled, but no one's going to care about James the way that I do. Right. And he wants to be home and with his family. Yeah. He's used to being in the community. He's used to going out and going to baseball games, going to bow bowling, you know, hanging out with his grandmother, going to the theater to see his sister perform, hanging out. I mean, wow. He had a really rich and full life going to the beach. And yeah. I'm going to say, oh, sorry, you're going to be put in a home for the rest of your life? No, that just, no, <laughs> it was not an option. Didn't make sense to me. As yeah. long as I knew that there was another way that we could address this, I was going to find a way to get there. Yeah. This reminds me of the sailing saying when people say, 
well, failure is not an option. You just keep trying until you succeed. And that's commitment. And that's belief, Mm -hmm. faith. And you just kept going. And man, you made it happen. You were one mama that they were just not going to. (laughs) Well, and you know, a lot of this comes from other things that I've been taught as well. So failure, I was taught when I was at this other organization. Failure is feedback. Yes. Okay. Failure means that there's information out there that's telling you what you need to do differently. So there were a lot of little failures along the way. Like, okay, mm-hmm. they said no again. Okay, well, what do we need to do differently? Right. Mm-hmm. So failure doesn't say it doesn't mean it's the end of the road. It means you need to change something. And very yeah. often people don't see it that way. We kind of we're raised in this perfectionism mm-hmm. that doesn't allow us to grow. Right. right? You know, you mentioned faith before too, you know, I am a woman of faith. I have tremendous support with my church family. I am confident that I know that God loves me. I also was reminded that as much as I love my son, there's a God who loves him even more. That's mind blowing to me because I know how much I love my son, right? Mm. So, you know, when you combine those things together, that's the, those are the kinds of things that give you that stamina, that ability to stick with it, knowing that the answer's out there. It's a matter of continuing to look for it. And knowing that if you continue to ask questions, you will find it. You can find those answers. And there is so much that we have within us that can answer so many questions. And yet sometimes we give up just before we get to that breakthrough, just before we get to that answer, right? You know, if you just don't, you just get, you're just around the corner. If you just keep stretching your neck, keep looking. One more. One, one more, more turn, one more, yeah. one more turn, one more step, right? You know, I've had the ability to have tremendous supports through my church family and through my friends in the disability world and, and other mm-hmm. people who I've grown up with, you know, and that's what helped keep me going was yeah. understanding that I wasn't doing this alone. I wasn't yep. walking through this by myself. And that's another good lesson to pull from that story is, you know, don't try and do it alone. No. But don't accept no or or that failure word because it's just a learning experience. Exactly. That's incredible. Stay in that learning orientation instead of that, you know, performance management, you know, that perfectionism. Yeah. You learn so much more. You know, the amount of stuff that I learned in that 15 and a half months And you're still going. I know you are a lifelong learner. (laughs) So tell our listeners how your career has now evolved and what you're doing currently. Well, I have just recently started as the assistant director for the Division for Children and Youth with Special Health Needs for the Department of Public Health in in Massachusetts. And, you know, it's a big change. It just happened in the last few months. After coming out of the experience that I had with James, I started looking around because I realized that I really had come to the end of kind of all the things that I had self-taught myself. You know, it's just, I recognized that I was going to need to get some more education. I needed language. I needed the ability to know that if I went in and talked to someone, I was going to be taken seriously. And that I understood how the system worked, Mm -hmm. right? I think one of the reasons I was so successful in special education was because I understood the system. I understood education in general, but I didn't understand healthcare except for my own personal experience. So the first thing I did was I started looking around and I saw the LEND program, which is the Leadership Education and Neurodevelopmental Disabilities. And it was a graduate level program. They have them all over the country, um, over 32 of them throughout the country. We have two here in Boston. And the thing about it, though, was uh, it was a graduate level program. And I 
despite many people's disbelief, didn't have a bachelor's degree. So I called the director and I was like, so I was wondering, would you consider a non-traditional candidate? And she says, well, what do you mean by that? And so I explained to her and she says, well, let me get back to you. That is so you. Who, how many of us would even think to pick up the phone and do that? Well, I mean, Why not? You know, in yeah. many ways, yes, it's very me, but there were also people who were kind of, were encouraging me along the way. Yeah. You know, they're like, yeah, 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 you, you can do that program. We, we yes. know you can do it. And I was like, yeah, but there's this, and I'm very much a rule follower, right? So I'm yeah. looking online and I'm seeing very first line, bachelor's degree or more, you know, required. Required. Okay. <laughs> but I called because I was like, I mean, it's worth a try, right? Yeah. And so she called me back eventually, um, about a week and a half later. And she says, you know, I can't guarantee anything. She says, but I think you should submit an application. I think it has merit. And quite frankly, some of our best fellows are parents because they got that fire mm -hmm. in their belly. They, mm -hmm. they got that life experience. They want to see change. And so I applied. And imagine awesome. my shock. I was accepted. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, it was an experiment for me in a couple of ways. It meets only on Fridays. So that was part of what I needed was kind of that same routine all the time. Cause I'm still managing James's medical needs every mm -hmm. day and my business. Mm -hmm. right? So it was every Friday for nine months. And I figured, you know, if I can complete this and finish this, that will be a huge step forward. And then I might think about maybe something else. So we, I was able to do that successfully and I recognized that I had gained some momentum and I didn't want to stop like, okay, I'm, I'm, on, I'm in this routine. If I'm going to go, go to school, I should continue like looking into this. And so at first I thought, well, maybe I'll go to school and become a sign language interpreter. But then um, I thought, well, or maybe I could pursue getting my master's in public, public administration. And what I ended up doing was it, it turned out that master's in public administration did not the program I was looking at would not take a non-BA candidate. However, the executive MBA program would. So I thought, hmm. And at first I didn't think it was a, would make much sense to get an MBA because I'm thinking corporate. But was, what was interesting about this program was that it had an emphasis on public policy. And I went, interesting. Ah. And I also wanted, and we had become very clear that I wanted to create partnerships between government agencies, corporate America, and nonprofit agencies. And so what better way to do that than to have an MBA to understand all of those different worlds, right? So once again, being the crazy person that I am, I applied for this program and I was accepted. And so I'm currently in the executive MBA program at Suffolk University. All right. So, so that while starting a new job. <laughs> I tell you what, if anyone listening has not pulled out something yet that inspires them, <laughs> there you go, right there. Like it just keeps going. And Beth has lots of other stories that are inspiring too, but we're probably <laughs> going to have to stop there for now. And But that's just, that's incredible. You can like the sky's the limit. You are just living, walking proof of belief and faith and not taking a no, just <laughs> going for and believing in yourself to accomplish all this. That's just well, some of it was incredible. believing in myself, but it also a lot of it was believing in other people's belief in me. You know, I was mm. a, a little unsure about this. Oh, maybe, okay, if I'm going to be completely honest, very unsure about this, you know, because of those rules, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there, but 
even in the position I'm in, would typically be someone who has a master's degree and who has a lot more experience in a government agency because of the interviewing process that, that the Department of Public Health did very deliberately and intentionally, they wanted more diverse candidates and they wanted someone with life experience. Hmm. So, you know, my education and the fact that I was going through school and the various things that I had learned along the way, being the mom of James actually worked well for this position, um, which is mind blowing to me. But so much of this, I mean, I, it was that there were people who kept saying to me, Beth, you can do this, Hmm. you know? So it, it wasn't just me going in with confidence. It was yeah. having a village of people who encouraged me along the way. You know, me knowing that if this is where the path that God is sending me on, he's not going to put me down a path that I can't be successful in. He's not going to set that up. Yeah. So I had to believe that if this is what he wanted me to do, if this is the path that I'm on, there's a reason he's put me here. And it's not yep. because I'm going to fall flat on my face. Right? There you go. So you have to have confidence in his confidence in you too. So, yeah. 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 And there, and there you go. And you did it. <laughs> and uh, we're still doing it. We're still working, I still learning. <laughs> so uh, proud of you and just everything you've accomplished and inspired by you. I really appreciate you sharing so much of your lessons learned with us today. Thank you. Do you have any wrap up parting wisdom? We haven't really, we've covered so much. I'm going to have to go back and pull it all out in a summary. (laughs) So many lessons and great inspiration. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? You know, two things, you know, one, as I said, know that there's a God that loves you. He does exist. Right. The second thing is, and I learned this from Paul Martinelli, you know, there are times when thoughts go through your head and you just automatically dismiss them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not possible. Who am I to think I can do that? The ideas are there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Take the time to actually hold on to them for a little while longer and entertain them. Because when you start doing that, you start dreaming more and then you start seeing possibilities. There are, every person I know has had those kinds of thoughts go through their head, Mm -hmm. right? And then later on, somebody else may actually pick up the idea because they heard it too. And they're actually millionaires or they're off doing something that they really love doing. And you go, I could have been a millionaire if I had done that. Yeah. Okay. It's true. Why not try it? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You're not going to be any worse off. Hold on to the thought long enough to listen and figure out What's the next step towards it? Because you don't have to get to the outcome tomorrow. Mm -hmm. If you keep moving towards it, you'll get there eventually. That's right. It doesn't matter how long it takes for you to get there. All that matters is that you get there and enjoy the journey along the way. Because you can learn so much and it's going to position you to be that much more successful the next time another idea drops in your head. I love it. Oh my goodness. So much goodness. Well, thank you. Beth, I appreciate you and your time and your wisdom. And I can't wait to watch you as you continue your journey and all the lives you are touching and helping and advocating for. It's tremendous. And thank you for tuning in today. We will talk to you soon. Take care. If you're like most women, You have a big dream on your heart and really want to make a positive impact in the lives of others. 
But self-doubt, fear, or other limiting beliefs often get in your way. What many women don't realize is that the one thing that can catapult them forward is deepening their self-love and self-esteem. So I have a free ebook for you that's really going to help you in this area. It's called 30 Days to Deepen Self-Love, and you can download it at the link in our show notes. Enjoy. Enjoy.